Alfonso Cuarón's Children of Men is not only one of the best dystopian films of the century, but is more relevant every single year tackling themes of illegal immigration, pandemics, and government control over citizens. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. Today is a very special episode because we are discussing one of our favorite films of all time, Alfonso Caron's Children of Men. This is a terrific film. I remember seeing it as a teenager. I think we were 17, 16 or 17 when we saw it. And Children of Men, like a couple other movies of that era, including There Will Be Blood, were films that really inspired me to grow a love for film and want to become a filmmaker. And we actually, we made a movie when we were 20, and I basically used the cinematography of Alfonso Cuarón and Emmanuel Lubezki, the cinematographer, and used that for our movie. So our movie was all handheld, long takes, very minimalist production in in cinematography. And Cuarón is a master director to this day. He has solidified himself as one of the greatest directors of all time. And Children of Men is one of his magnum opuses. And I just think that this film deserves to be seen by everyone and is still incredibly culturally and societally relevant to this day. It's a timeless movie. It gets better every year, more relevant every year. I hadn't seen it in a few years probably, but I've probably seen it 15 times. But It came out in 2006, so obviously it just blew our minds and our hair back when we were teenagers seeing Children of Men. And Alfonso had just come off Itu Mama Tambien as well as Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So very much in-demand director, was able to get a $75 million budget for this film. Only pulled $70 million globally at the box office, but it has definitely recuperated its funds and made a profit off of VOD sales. And now just being a cult classic of this century so far. And Alfonso is a really special filmmaker. And I think people finally realize that after this movie for sure... Because, you know, plenty of directors jump in for franchise films and do that stuff. And not a ton of people saw Itumama Tambien, which I think is a terrific movie. But you can see so many of his skills that he was crafting and style of his approaching of directing in Itumama Tambien in this film, which we'll talk about, especially the long takes, handheld, foreground and background, telling a story two different ways. Commercially and critically, like I said, commercially wasn't super successful at the box office, but it has made its money back plenty. Ron Tomatoes, it is a 92% critic score. 85% audience score. IMDb is a 7.9 out of 10 with 511,000 range, which I think is pretty low. Pretty low. This for me is a yeah. 9.5 personally. This movie, maybe a 10. It's a, it's an almost near perfect movie. Is it, it's not even in the top 250 on IMDb. It's not. didn't make that list. You got to be like a minimum 8.2, mm-hmm. 8.3 for that. It was nominated for three Oscars, including Best Adapted Screenplay for Alfonso, Timothy Sexton, his writing partner, David Arada, Mark Fargera, and... Hank Osterley, as well as nomination for Best Cinematography for Emmanuel Lubezki, as well as film editing for Alfonso Cuaron and Alex Rodriguez. Alfonso is very involved with the editing of all of his films. And the screenplay is just it's just tremendous. It's based off the book of the same name, published in 1992 by P.D. James. And the screenplay, so it was first written by Paul Chart. He wrote the first version. It was rewritten a few times by other screenwriters, including Mark Fergus, Hawk Osby, Timothy J. Sexton, then Alfonso Cuaron. The final version was written by David Arata, Cuaron, and Sexton. Clive Owen's insights greatly impressed Cuaron, and he contributed a great deal of uncredited work to the final script. 
and Alfonso chose not to read the original novel by P.D. James because he feared it would compromise his vision for the project because there are quite a few differences between the screenplay in the book. Have you read the book? I've never read the book, no. I, I did. After I saw the film, I read the book, and yeah. it's really fantastic. But uh, the uh, the biggest difference is, without a doubt, the reason for infertility. So in the movie, uh, they chose that women became infertile and are no longer giving birth or even having pregnancies. But in the book, it's men who become infertile, and they're no longer producing uh, sperm. And so that's the reason why babies have stopped being born in the book. And the book is a terrific science fiction dystopian novel. The movie is pretty much faithful for most for the most part, and they did a wonderful job adapting it with the writing. And then Alfonso just, you know, sometimes a director can make a story soar from the page in, in ways that you never believed or imagined. And this is an example of such an incredible adaptation of a, a very difficult and complex novel to pull off. In a quick synopsis of the film... In case you've never seen it, or a little refresher, so the film is, takes place in the year 2027 in a chaotic world in which women have somehow become infertile, as Anthony just said, and a former activist, Theo, played by Clive Owen, agrees to help transport a miraculously pregnant woman to a sanctuary at sea. And there are the, another major difference between the movie and the book is Theo and Julian's son, Dylan, died from a disease during the epidemic because there's also a flu epidemic that strikes and pandemic that strikes the world in 2008 in this world. Sound familiar? I know. That's why it's still relevant. And they predicted quite a few things. Now, in the book, it's Julian who is pregnant and Theo is protecting her. In the book, Theo is married to somebody else and divorced them and had a daughter named Natalie who was killed when Theo backed out of the driveway and accidentally ran her over. The movie and the book show this death as the reason for either relationship not working. And the movie also changed and combined Julian and Helena while creating Key. So Key was created, Key was created for the story. Because I think Alfonso, you know, when he first came up, when he was first approached for doing this movie, he wasn't super enticed by the, the novel. He wasn't, what he said, was interested in... And basically a dystopian future telling the story of upper class wealth because a lot of the book follows that kind of characters. But then he kind of spitballed and came up with the idea of just the cataclysmic event of infertility and what the world would look like and telling a story like that with a lot of the same characters. In high concept movies are difficult to pull off and high concept basically means something very extreme uh, causing the story. So... Like maybe high Blade Runner is kind of high concept, but just something like world changing. And this is an example of, you know, babies are not being born, but like something like maybe waters run out in the world. So these are something like Mad Max. That's like also a high concept uh, premise for uh, the world of a film. And they are very difficult to pull off because I think most of the time they kind of miss the mark and science fiction. If it's not that great, it can be pretty, pretty bad, but. The thing is, Alfonso was such an incredibly meticulous, detailed, and artistic visionary that he managed to pull this off in resounding ways to make it still feel like it's so uh, realistic and it's such a high-concept, crazy premise. But the way he crafted this movie makes it seem like this is totally plausible. And if something like this did happen, I mean, this seems like a an outcome that would be likely and... I love so I I love science fiction films in the future where 
we get to see like these incredible new kinds of futures, whether it be the production design, technology, the advancements of things like AI and everything about society. But then I also love this kind of sci-fi where we see basically a very more realistic interpretation of our world much more closely akin to ours. And this world feels like ours in so many ways. And it's set in 2029. And this film came out in 2006. So it, it was set more than 20 years after when the came, film came out. And yet it's, it felt like such a true depiction of a, a possible future of our world. And obviously the, the main theme of the film, I would say, is hope. And the entire society, for the most part, has completely lost hope. And the world that Quaron and his production team built is a reflection of that. You know, we, we, the, the world has stopped advancing. And the world has stopped building things. The world has stopped searching or exploring or improving things. And instead, uh, the world is just falling apart, withering away, aging, and falling into crisis and violence and rage and control. Because there is no hope for a future. Uh, and I think Theo is a great representation of a lack of hope. He's a person who goes on this journey and eventually finds hope at the end of the film. But there's a great a great dialogue scene between him and his cousin, uh, uh, Virgil, where... Nigel. Nigel, sorry, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> He's Nigel. The guy who, who runs the arc of arts. Yeah, and Theo tells him, like, what? why are you doing all this? Like, what's the point? Like, I don't understand how you can keep going. And Nigel just says, I just don't think about it. Because Theo has lost himself into the idea that, you know, in a hundred years, there won't be a single person to look at any of this. So what's the point in doing anything other than just like just surviving uh, as long as you can? And then also there's a bunch of remarks with you. Someone, uh, Julian says, you're smoking again. He said, yeah, but it's not working. He's basically saying they haven't killed me yet. So Theo is a representation of a complete loss of hope. And to counter the cigarette thing, there's still hope for some people like some members of the Fishes. Theo offers one of them a cigarette later in the film at that hideout. He's like, no, those will kill you because that guy still has hope mm -hmm. because the fishes still do have hope. Now, there are three major events and things that have happened in this world of children and men that has sent the world into complete chaos and a loss of hope. Obviously, the 18 years of infertility. A woman has not given birth in 18 years to a baby. And this is brilliantly shown with this awesome opening scene of the death of baby Diego, who's still called baby Diego. And he's a 17 year old in some, how many days old kid, biggest celebrity on the planet because he's the youngest person he's killed while he's being mobbed by fans and spits on a fan. And now there's another youngest person named, but I think that opening shot so brilliant because it just shows the audience of all these people watching the loss of hope, because this is the youngest person alive, the most famous person alive. Now they're dead more more hope has been drained from the world so 18 years of infertility then we also have Remi sorry remind me i want to go back to the cafe scene real quick yeah, yeah, after just, you finish yeah, your yeah. thing and so we'll, we'll get to that then we have another main event that's happened in this world is the collapse of every civilization besides britain this is shown brilliantly through a news broadcast that says kind of almost comically and satirically the the fall of united states paris russia. brazil russia yeah. moscow every country listed off as fallen and destroyed but britain remains fallen to chaos britain is the one outlier mm -hmm. and they still have control over their country i think uh that seems very likely impossible because it's an island yeah and also i mean england was historically historically difficult for other countries and nations to conquer throughout the ages because of its 
territory being an island. So I think that this is definitely a likely possibility. Took ancient Rome quite a bit yeah. to, to get <laughs> took them a while. Took them a, a lot of failed conquests. And also, besides the collapse of the world besides Britain, we have the 2008 flu pandemic that wiped out a massive amount of the world population, as well as many of the young children and babies that were born before the infertility happened. Obviously, Dylan, the son of Julian and Theo, passed away at the age of two from this flu pandemic. And we get a lot of great just exposition, not through dialogue, but through things like uh, footage on the news or graffiti in the background or newspaper headlines, and Alfonso and Lubezki, they they work very closely. You can compare to Villeneuve and Deacons. Villeneuve and Deacons, they start in pre-production, and that's kind of rare for a DP to be working with the director that early on. But Lubezki and Quaron have such a intrinsic working relationship uh, that they start in pre-production designing the film, the look of the film. And they both were adamant about uh, portraying the, the world building in a way of showcasing ideas and themes and issues through graffiti through the news through newspapers and they even um they were together they hit the idea of loading up the background with information information quaron says with graffiti with play cards and with newscasts thus limiting the kind of expository dialogue that often plagues dystopian stories you know movies where a character will just go on exposition runs for five minutes and I oftentimes find that pretty boring and unnecessary. Uh, Quaron is someone who doesn't like to hold your hand with his movie. He says, We cannot allow one single frame of this film to go without a comment on the state of things. And this is a movie where when you watch it over and over again, it uh, has high rewatchability because there's so much in every frame. Whether it's graffiti in the background or a sign or something about the news or a building uh, and also the design of the world. There's so much detail put into every frame, but also uh, Lubezki and Quaron, they took this documentarian style approach to the cinematography where it's very abnormal for this in a film like this where the camera will just wander on its own and then explore different parts of a scene. Uh, for example, when Theo is on his journey to work and he passes by the immigration cages, uh, the camera stops following Theo, and then Lubezki and Quaron just take the camera and they pan it to the left and then looks up at the building. The, the camera will often observe the world around us. Sometimes the camera tilts up to look at trees. This is something that is so rare, but it adds to this this documentarian feel where it's like it feels like we're seeing footage of a story that was captured in real life and it, there's a there's a real power to not always following the characters and only like something like this can really pull it off in a resounding way that works and is powerful and helps serve the story so if you watch this movie the camera will often do its own thing and and show you different aspects to scenes that don't always involve the character and i think that plays so much but also in terms of blocking and actually the casting of the film clive owen he's a tall guy six foot two so he stands out in a crowd but the opening scene in the cafe is a perfect example of quaron trying to show you that this character is important because we don't even know he's the lead character until we start following him because the film opens cafe he walks in orders a coffee and then we follow him outside that's when we know he's the lead character ultimately but right off the bat Quaron shows us that Clive Owen as Theo is the most important person in the scene because everyone they cast in that scene all of the extras they perfect they purposely cast shorter people 
so that Clive Owen really stood out in the scene. And so if you look at the frame, he looks like a, a giant compared to everybody else in the frame, and it really makes the audience lock with him to single him out in a way as a lead character. Plus, he barely even cares what's going on in the news. He walks mm. right in to get his coffee. He looks up at it, but he's the only one that already has no hope, so he's not transfixed, and obviously the explosion outside. And I, I want to stay on the blocking cinematography, and this is one of the most detailed films you'll ever see in your entire life. Every single frame, every shot, every scene, every location, the amount of meticulous detail everywhere is so incredible and i think it flies under the radar for a lot of people because every shot everything you see is put there on purpose coordinated planned out very intensely and like you said so much exposition in the background but also what coron loves to do with his storytelling and you see this a lot in youtube mama tambien is playing with the foreground and the background at the same time of a shot not necessarily like you said sometimes the camera will be following the main characters then it'll turn to like you said the refugees inside that prison cell then comes back or to the the mother holding the dying son then cut back to show you what's going on in the world because the background is just as important if not more important than what's going on in the foreground in this film when we're watching our characters there's so many shots where our characters are up front and frame but in the background you can see things happening and Itumama Tambien they do a brilliant job that movie is basically a road trip for the majority of it but Alfonso's telling you the story about the state of the society, the wealth disparity, racism, everything going on at the time in Mexico with the background of the scenes with people in their towns and villages with even the story of the the mural of the crashed victim on the highway, all kinds of things that are going on in the background that he's not addressing as a storyteller with his characters, but you're seeing it. He wants you to see it visually. And pretty much every single shot in this movie the background, there is a ton of information, not just exposition like Anthony said, but also things that are important to the story, to the world, to help you understand what's going on, to really give you a state of what this world is like. And I just love to watch this because there's so much detail and it's so transfixing and, and I see things, new things every single time I watch this movie. But I, I can't stress enough that how many times this movie demands a rewatch. It's one of the most rewatchable movies of all time. Yeah, and, and like you said, the blocking is really exceptional in cinematography. And I think that people maybe don't realize how much work and care and precision goes into something like this because of the handheld nature of the cinematography. Kind of makes it feel like, oh, they're just filming that right there. But everything is very much by design. He is a very controlled uh, director, and Lubeski is... One of the best cinematographers of all time. He actually won the Oscar three years in running, three years in a row, which has never been done before, which is absolutely absurd. It was Birdman, The Revenant, and um, something else. I can't remember. Oh, Gravity. Uh, gravity. Gravity. Three years in a row. That's That doesn't happen ever. And the thing is, because of the handheld nature, it takes away the idea that it's very controlled, like a Fincher film or like a Kubrick film, but... I guarantee you it is just as controlled. And there are so many elements. What I find so incredible about the film is, more than anything, the blocking and cinematography. Because all these, this film is obviously famous for its long takes. And now long takes have become, a, wonders have become a pretty common thing, a commonality, because of films like this and because of films like, uh, what uh, because of Steven Spielberg, he, did a, he does a ton of wonders. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, Robert Altman, you know, the early days of Wonders, and even going back to Touch of Evil with Orson Welles, who crafted one of the best one takes. Although Plus French New Wave. Yeah, the French New Wave 
French New Wave, not just long takes, but just uh, documentarian style of handheld cinematography. Uh, Godard really inspired that new wave of just shooting scenes, not doing a ton of lighting, not doing a ton of camera setups, but, you know, just capturing it with one frame and just going handheld like we're just there in the room with them. Um, but uh, there's a film called uh, A Long Day's Journey Tonight. It's a Chinese film. A Long Day's Journey Tonight came out in 2018. It has the greatest wonder in history. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's 57 minutes and it's real. And that's, a, that's an instance of it's a real one take. Whereas in Children of Men, all of the one takes are actually several takes blended together. None of them are actually true one takes. But that doesn't make them any less impressive because of the intense choreography, set design, and action sequences. I mean, there's a scene that one of the long, one of the one takes has tanks and gunfire and, and it's basically a war zone. So I think that the resources just aren't at your disposal to really pull that off in one take, although I'm sure Quaron tried, but uh, many of these takes are blended together. The car scene is a take where it's one take, it's th about three or four that are blended together. But that doesn't mean it's any less impressive than something like A Long Day's Journey Tonight, which is a real wonder. Now, it's not just the camera running for four or five minutes that's impressive. It's the blocking of these scenes, the precision of every movement of every actor, of every extra, uh, of the location, wherever they are, of the physical obstacles in the way of these characters, and the camera moving with them, the dance of it all. That's what I find so mesmerizing about this film and so powerful about it. And very few films even compete even compared to it and also especially one of my favorites is the farmhouse escape where theo saves key and miriam by it's a couple of minutes that no one talks about yeah exactly so it's it's a three it's actually three minutes in 40 seconds i think so they're in the house they walk outside they steal they he takes the carburetor out of one out of one engine then he takes the other car and they push it down the hill then the other guy the guys go after them and Theo manages to start the car with Miriam as they're pushing it down the hill, and then they drive away. First of all, it's extremely suspenseful. It feels like there's a ticking clock, and there's so many, so much going on. You're outside, the, the camera's outside of the car, then it's inside the car, then it's outside the car again, and you, you're dealing with you're dealing with a dangerous set piece in terms of an actual vehicle. You know what I mean? That shot start, starts indoors. Exactly. But what's what I find even more impressive is the timing of it. Because think about what's the lighting like. They shot it at dawn, like real dawn. The sky is it's actually the scene starts out. It's it's quite dark, and then by the time they're pushing the car on the road and driving away, it's, it lightens up a lot. So they shot it at real dawn, and the sky is actually changing. So not only was it perfectly choreographed and blocked. But they timed it perfectly for the kind of light that Quaron wanted for the scene. And that's just like an amount of care and detail that you rarely ever see before. But it makes all the difference in the world because it's not like it's color corrected to look like it's dawn. It's like they actually shot it at dawn and it makes all the difference in the world. Clive Owen did not have shoes on. No shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I have a little info on the three obviously most popular long takes from this movie or fake long takes enhanced with CGI to explain how they pulled them off. And obviously the most famous one is probably that car attack, which was the incredible 360 moving rig that they came up with the, with that car. Now this is the long shot, long shot when the Fiat Multipla is attacked by the terrorists with all of the passengers inside, demanded a camera rig that could rotate within the car. They used a rig developed by doggy cam systems and controlled by a stunt driver. So there's a stunt driver controlling this entire rig. 
in, in the car at the same time. The windshield was designed to tilt out of the way to allow camera movement in and out through the windshield. The single shot was used in six takes over four locations requiring a lot of transition work from the visual effects house double negative as it pans around inside the car. The cocktail stunt driver and motorcycle from the moment it hits the car, windshield, blood, and roof were all computer rendered with 3D animation. That's incredible just invisible stuff. CGI. That but, Molotov cocktail, it's all CGI. Yeah, completely. the gunshot, the glass. But you can assume yeah. that Julianne Moore probably had some sort of blood bag that rig, just splashed yeah. all over herself when the camera moved away from her exactly. after the gunshot. This movie has a lot of invisible CGI that interacts with the actors. The other, another really great long. Oh, I'm sorry. But the, also inside that vehicle, the actors' seats all moved. Yeah. So as the camera would move inside the vehicle to diff, to get to different setups, the actors would actually be moving in their seats. So the the interior of the car was quite large, and then the seats would mechanically get out of the way of the camera or move forward or left or right. So the camera would have move, room to weave throughout the interior of the car. The next really impressive long take fake long take in this film is key's birth and this is after key and theo have made it into that bex hill refugee camp that they technically smuggle themselves into with the help of sid and jasper now the birth of key's baby was achieved by putting claire hope ashley who was the actress who played key into a set piece which had a fake lower body a prop baby was pushed out of it for clive owen to hold the prop baby was later digitally erased and replaced with a full moving cgi baby other effects such as breath vapor were also added digitally this is a really incredible long take, though, that I think flies on the radar as well. In this yeah, movie. because it's intimate, and it's one of those takes where it's just one room, and they're not moving. No, it, it starts before. Oh, I'm sorry. Start. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. You're right. They go. They enter the room and yeah. stuff. But he manages to do a lot of setups with the camera, making mm -hmm. it feel like it's being edited. You know what I mean? And I something I love about that scene is obviously Theo is an alcoholic, but he's using his his drug of choice and his 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 addiction to clean his hands purification to kind of purify his 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 hope and how he's got his hope back yeah, in a he lot actually of ways. has alcohol in his hand in every scene in the first 20 minutes and he never finishes a cigarette in yeah. this movie <laughs> in the final and obviously most maybe impressive long take is the war zone street battle at the end of the film the third act where theo has to take cover in a battered building and cause for concern for which take cover in a battered building this caused concern for the studio as it took 14 days to prepare for this long one shot with a delay of five hours every time it had to be reshot. So 14 days it took to prepare and then five hours to reset and redress everything after they did an attempt at a shot. It was shot over the course of two days, but only one complete take was actually captured on film. In the middle of one take, some blood spattered on the camera lens, which just happens inside the bus, I believe. Mm -hmm. Writer and director Alfonso Cuarón early ended this take by shouting cut. Nearly, nearly. Oh, sorry. Nearly ended this take by shouting cut. But his voice was obliterated by the sound of a tank and gunfire. Looking at the footage, cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki persuaded Cuarón to, to leave it in. And that is the shot that appears in the final movie. Yeah, so you see about a dozen drops of blood on the on the lens, and that's real. They didn't add that, but throughout the course of the scene, they brilliantly erase drop by drop. And what happens is when the camera passes by, usually an image of darkness, or is it, if it pans to something, during a pan of motion and action is when they start digitally erasing drops until finally there are no drops left on the frame. But if you watch it carefully, you can actually see every moment where they digitally take away each drop of blood 
They'll do it right here. Then they do it on the next pin, and they do it when they bring the camera and tilt it up. They'll get rid of a couple drops of blood until when they enter the building, all of the blood is gone off the lens. That's pretty cool. And in addition to having great production crew for these long takes, you need incredible performers and actors. This is, without a doubt, Clive Owen's best performance and best role in his entire career. He is exceptional and just perfectly cast as Theo. Chiwetel Ejiofor is excellent as Luke as well. Brings so much to that character. So Both much. an inside man in yeah. the same year. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. That's right. He's, he's, a, de he's a detective. Uh, Julianne Moore plays Julian in this film. Michael Caine, what a scene still in this movie as Jasper. So, oh, And Charlie Hunnam actually has an early role in this movie too. He's mm -hmm. the blonde guy with the dreadlocks who works for the fishes. And I, I think that's just one of the most important parts when you're working with great talents that really makes life a lot easier for a director when you're doing long takes like this. And Claire Hope Ashley as Key, like you mentioned earlier, is, is fantastic in that role. And she's she's actually from London, but she does a terrific accent in this. But you, she she has like the, the London slang, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which I think adds a lot of character to, to her, to her person, personality. And also Michael Caine, used John Lennon as inspiration for his character's personality. So you can definitely see the vibe, the John Lennon-esque vibe and quality to him. And Michael, there's so much that isn't explained, but more so shown. So Jasper's wife, Janice, she's all, she's in a catatonic stake. She's basically incapable of speaking. And it's because she was tortured by the government. They were both activists, political activists. And Jasper was a political cartoonist. And you can see some of his political cartoon cartoons and drawings on the walls of their home. And Janice was a photojournalist and very heavy in activism. And that's why they befriended Theo and Julian, who were also uh, activists as well. But Janice's story is tragic and also connects to the idea of Big Pharma and the use of quietus, which is a drug, a legal drug in Britain, which is basically uh, a, a drug that kills you. It's just for self-suicide. And it's something that you can relate to Big Pharma, to something like the overuse of antidepressants or, or, or any kind of Big Pharma drugs that they're just pushing on the public. And Jasper makes a joke that, you know, ganja is illegal, but this stuff is, is illegal. It's kind of ridiculous. And I think that the ties to huge pharmaceutical companies is a great correlation that is still very, very relevant to this world. But Quietus seems like something that, you know, big pharma in the government would legalize one day in a certain situation like this. Yeah, that's one of the major themes of the film is big pharma. And I think that even ties to they're talking about the rations that people yeah. get every month and the rations come with suicide kits suicide kits and antidepressants that's what comes in and ration kits along with the food and everything and supplies but some other huge thematic elements of this film illegal immigration and illegal immigrants in this film great britain is the last civilization really and illegal immigrants are hunted they it is illegal to help or shelter it is advised to report against illegal immigrants to get them locked up and they basically hide conceal themselves as illegal immigrants in that refugee camp in order to get to the boat at the end of the film some other interesting themes we have a slight improvement in technology here and there like the newspapers are digital some little surveillance technological things here and there like nigel's son is playing that hand like <laughs> vr game <laughs> ar spot game on we also have 
youth and medical surgery. A lot of like the advertisements you'll see on TV or billboards are about, you know, staying young forever because you're there's no hope. You might as well try to stay young as, as young as you can forever. And you can assume that maybe Nigel's son has had some sort of surgeries as well. He's got some scarring on his face. Who knows what he's been through? As well as the wealth disparity seems at the uh, it's worse in the history of civilization this movie because when he goes when Theo goes to visit his cousin Nigel he goes into the wealthiest part of Britain in this place it's like a different world he goes into it's it's walled off and secured by a ton of military enforcement behind fences behind walls and in this world it is just the wealthiest people just living their lives as the elites of society they have it's like a different planet, basically. It's so clean and pristine. Yeah. And compared to the rest of the world, which is so dirty and destroyed and decaying. We also have a great theme about chance versus faith, which is something that Jasper talks about when Theo brings Key and Miriam there to hide. Now, he's talking about chance and faith and how, by chance, Theo and Julian met. And by chance, their son Dylan was born. And depending on who had faith or not was where they where they ended up after the loss of Dylan and everything like that. But I love that debate of chance versus faith. Now you could say that for the rest of civilization. Maternity is also obviously a major theme in this film, with Key being the first mother in 18 years to a newborn baby. Futility, hopelessness, pointlessness was yeah, the point was the of point, life yeah. anymore, as well as infertility, obviously one of the main themes of this film. And Something that Jasper says a few times in this movie is Shanti, 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 which Miriam and Jasper both say. Julian says it, oh, I mean, Miriam says it over Julian's dead body. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Jasper says it at the house. And what this is a reference to, he says it when he finds out Key is pregnant. And it also appears at the very end of the credits. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. It's, a, it's the final line of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland a poem that deals with the theme of infertility in the post-World War I world. Originally from the Upanishads, it roughly translates to the peace that passes understanding. Also, divinity is is actually the, the main theme of the book, the novel. Uh, it's kind of implied that divine reasons are the cause for infertility, although the film discredits that. But it still implies... that. What I love is the Quarrel never explains what caused it. Yeah. He just implies different ideas and possibilities, whether it be um, the destruction of the environment, whether it be something like God's wrath. But also there's that stork joke that Jasper says where everyone's trying to figure out why no women aren't giving birth anymore. And they ask the gentleman eating in the corner and he's about to eat this, take a bite of this big, delicious wing. And he says, I haven't the faintest idea. But this stork really is delicious. <laughs> and storks obviously being like the children's story of like where babies come from. So that's a metaphor for humanity destroying itself and eating itself, consuming itself in a way. But there are he played with themes of, of divinity and Christianity in this film. Obviously, Key makes that joke about being a virgin, a pregnant virgin. Obviously, it's a joke. She says she just doesn't even know the, the name of the father. And then also she tells Theo in a barn, in a stable... And that's what's what's the story the uh, the nativity story. So very much just like that, he's he's sprinkling themes and images, rather than telling you this is why it's happening. He's making the audience come up with their own assertions based upon what they're seeing on screen. And one of my favorite sequences is the arc of art, 
Nigel's place where he is basically a preserver of humanity's greatest artworks. And we obviously see the statue of David, the real statue of David. In his in his residence, as well as, as a Pablo Picasso painting, and a couple Banksies, yeah, a couple Banksies. So actually, that's very interesting as well. But if you look at so the thing is the David the, the statue of David actually has a broken leg. David's statue still is still fully intact. However, there was an article that Quaron read. Someone in Italy, an Italian journalist, wrote an article about how history Italy is losing its heritage and its art. And in a picture drawn for that article in the magazine, showcased a broken leg on the statue of David as an as a correlation for what the article was about. And so he took that idea, liked it a lot. So he's like, okay, I'm gonna let's have that as this David statue have it have the broken leg like in that article I read. And uh, the painting by Pablo Picasso is actually called Guernica, and it's the same image drawn on the wall of the tunnel as well. This was Pablo Picasso's reaction to General Francisco Franco's bombing of Guernica, Spain, the Basque capital, during the Spanish Civil War, which killed an estimated 1,600 civilians. So it's, it's a very relevant painting to the themes of the movie. And now Banksy has actually two artworks featured in this film. In the film, we see the stenciled image of a child looking down on a shop. Now, Quaron actually tried to get Banksy to work on the film with him because he actually hired a lot of well-known graffiti artists to create the graffiti you see in the film. Uh, however, Banksy ended up declining the film, but he did give them permission to use two of his artworks. But he did have a meeting with Banksy, or so he thought. So what hap- this really cool story happened. So... Uh, Alfonso Cuaron reached out to Banksy's manager, and famously, Banksy's manager is the only person who knows in the world who in the art world who knows Banksy's identity and and maintains that secret to great effect. And so Cuaron said they came close to having the artistic collaboration of the infamous anonymous street artist Banksy. Banksy was not yet the famous Banksy that he is now, and I dug him, Cuaron says. He also wanted to have the graffiti artist work on the film in some way, so he tracked down Banksy's manager and arranged a meeting at a coffee shop. However, Cuaron sat across from the manager, who started grilling the director on his political ideological stances. Banksy was nowhere to be seen and never showed up. And then the meeting with the manager ended without resolution. However, Cuaron hanged out at the cafe a little bit longer and he did see. He spoke to another person who was sitting nearby, who seemed to be very excited. This person told Quaron that while Quaron was meeting with the manager, a silent figure walked into the cafe and sat right behind Quaron at another table the whole time, hidden from view. Then, before Quaron left, this person left the left the cafe. Quaron suspects that Banksy was this person who secretly listened to their meeting. Ultimately, Banksy did not sign on to the film, but like I said, he gave permission to use two pieces for the film. Very cool. Yeah. Back to religion and Christianity, specifically, and uh, the symbolism all over this movie, a few more references. So Julian is the leader of the fishes. And now a fish is a symbol of Christianity since the 2nd century AD. That's right, yeah. And obviously that's a reference to there, but also... When Key is reveals her pregnancy to Theo in the barn, in the stable, like you said, she is taking the position of Botticelli's painting of the, the Venus. Venus, yeah. Venus. We saw it in Italy, in Florence. Yeah. yeah. Also, another reference is you're talking about the David statue, and Nigel 
uh, like Theo says something to him, and Nigel makes a joke saying, "We, but uh, we couldn't get Michelangelo, Michelangelo's Pieta, yeah, Pieta. Pieta, Michelangelo's Pieta. It was already destroyed. Now the Michelangelo's Pieta statue is a very famous statue in Italy, made by Michelangelo, obviously. And is it, this it, the one with the crying mother? Let me say, I'm, it. Ask, I'm just asking you. <laughs> Jeez, man, it is a statue of." Mary holding a, de- a dead Jesus in her arms, and she's weeping, basically, and Jesus' body is lifeless. And this is actually depicted in the film later on when Theo and Key are in the refugee camp, I believe, and the camera, like you said, sometimes goes to what's happening in the background. The camera turns to a woman who's holding her dead son in her arms, weeping. So what Coron does in this film a lot is he brings art to life and brings it to the ground, the reality. And I also really love the sound design of this film. It's very resonant and impactful and disturbing in a lot of ways. And and one of my favorite things of sound design is the credits are actually, you hear the sound and laughter of children. And it's something that's referenced by Miriam in the abandoned school. She says that, which she says something like the sound of children playing like that disappearing. Something about the loss of hope. Yeah. yeah something like that. And we get that great shot of key sitting on the swing through the lens of the open area of the broken window. But the sound design is really propulsive, especially the action sequences and also the ringing of, of Leo's ears. We experience in the film multiple times from the opening scene there's also, when he walks into his office, it's extremely low ambiance sound because he, he's having trouble hearing, so we're kind of having trouble hearing with him as well. And Julian even says that thing about that's the last time you'll ever hear that frequency, probably a metaphor for like the loss of hope in the world. Mm-hmm. So many metaphors. So, <laughs> and also, going back to how you said uh, the flu epidemic killed a lot of people, if you look in Theo's office... It's, it's, it's an open floor plan with several dozen desks with computers. However, half of the computers and desks are covered with plastic bagging, meaning that half of the staff is gone. Also, there's a jobs crisis. Very few people can work. And there's just no new people, there's no new blood to inject any life into an economy or any life into any industry. So that's another reason why jobs are, are in such low effect. And it's very difficult just to, for people just to survive because you got to think about you know, new generations of people create new wealth. They create new economy, new uh, new industries, or they add to the economy in some way. They create small businesses. They uh, they work in the STEM careers and advanced technology. They advance sciences. Uh, they invest. They they create upstarts. They they create every. They help build and improve society, and that's gone. So there's nothing that's nothing about society is growing. Instead, it's only decaying and it's only withering away. I want to talk about some imagery, and then we'll take our intermission. Then we got to start talking about the characters in the, in oh, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. So there's great imagery in this film and great references. I, I think a fan favorite of this movie is the floating pigs outside the window of the Ark of Arts, which is a reference to Pink Floyd's album Animals, which was heavily influenced in this satirical representation, you could say, of Animal Farm by George Orwell. And then also... There's a there's a great shot on uh, the countryside of burnt cows multiple times. Their yeah. hooves just up, and it makes you wonder like, what does that mean? Did they have some sort of disease that plagued the cows, 
or is money so scarce in this world that it's pointless to even have cows because no one can afford meat and you can't even maybe the farmers can't even afford to keep the cows maybe they had to kill them but it's probably more of a disease is is going through agriculture and and cattle there's also another george orwell reference to 1984 in which one, we see that there's a ministry of energy and now in 1984 uh, the government is run by different ministries the ministry of truth the ministry of energy there's all sorts of different ministries which all have different aspects of controlling the co- the population uh, and so it's tying to that with, with this film as well. Also, going back to Pablo Picasso's Guernica, which is the giant mural that's behind Theo when he's sitting at the dinner table with Nigel and Nigel's son, it's really interesting to choose that specific one because of what it means, and it has a lot of wartime themes to it, but also it's black and white and gray. And of all of Picasso's works, he's got so many colorful works, or any kind of mural, you could pick a colorful mural. Obviously, they chose this because... It's behind Theo, our main character. It's kind of just a representation of the world because the depiction of England and Britain and London in this movie is constantly overcast. It's dreary. It's rainy. It's gray. The stone everywhere is decaying. It's falling apart. And this mural, this painting, basically represents the world even though we're indoors right now behind Theo. That's a really excellent point because there is no sunlight in this movie to be seen at all. Not for in one frame. There is no sun at all. That's a great point. Thanks, man. Man, you I, know movies. I wrote that down when I was watching it. I said, painting behind Theo is dark. Anthony is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and then any other imagery I want to bring up real quick? Well, there's more we can get into, but let's just let's head into our intermission. Oh, yeah. We'll head into our yeah. intermission because there's a ton to still, still talk about still because this is Children of Men and it's a masterpiece and it's, oh, yeah. it's an incredible movie and... Oh man, I wish people would see if they'd never seen it. I just guess, I mean, I looked on Letterboxd, it only has 35,000 reviews. That's sad. Terrifier 2 has more reviews than it. Sad. I mean, the thing with this movie, and the thing with obviously the film community right now is recency bias is so important to films and how well they're received. That if this movie came out this year, it people would hail as the best movie of all time. Well, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to name the person, but uh, an influencer on TikTok, they mentioned how. The new Chris Hemsworth extraction movie is gonna. It has so many. It has a long action take, a wonder that, and and they only refer to Daredevil as having another great action one take. <laughs> it's like it's like. Have you seen Children of Men? <laughs> have you seen the raid? <laughs> yeah, the raid's awesome. Oh my god, the recency man, man. Anyways, like, this isn't about. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm ranting about recency bias. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should do an episode spoiling. of recency bias. We should. That, I think that's a really cool topic. The problem with recency bias. Fuck that would, yeah, that'd be a great episode. But let's get into our intermission. And before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast to help us do the show full time is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You can also leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. That really helps the show. It helps us get seen by new people. Apple Podcasts, you get the option to even leave a written review as well, plus subscribe on YouTube. But Patreon is the best way to financially support us. We have five different tiers, $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons. Everyone has access to bonus episodes every week. The weekly chat is exclusively on Patreon now, but every patron has access to it as well as a weekly bonus episode. That $10 tier gets you access to our Discord. It's an incredible film community. We just watched Blade for a watch party the other night. It was super fun. Motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> so we always we do watch parties on there a couple times a month. 
$25 tier gets you a custom episode. You pick a topic, we do it for you. Our $100 tier, that is the chosen one patronage. After three months in that tier, you get to come on the show for a fun guest segment. We have a personal watch party with you only, as well as so many other perks that all these tiers have that I don't even have time to list off. So go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the very best way to support our show. The sponsor of this show is, of course, our friends at movieposters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to head on over to their website and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. They are also doing a movie poster giveaway on our Zodiac episode. So all you have to do to enter this free giveaway is to make a comment on our Zodiac episode on YouTube that will enter you for a chance to win a free poster from MoviePoster.com. We are going to select a winner on Thursday, so be sure to find out if you won. And if not, be sure to use MoviePoster.com and our promo code Raiders10 for all of your poster needs. All right, let's get into this intermission, Anthony. Let's do it. Movie quote competition up first. Ready? Ready. One day, the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons on the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools all set for extinction. God damn it, I know this. This is a movie I've seen a lot of times. Oh, oh my god. Say it again. One day, the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons on the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools all set for extinction. Oh, man. <laughs> I can't think of it. I don't know. Ex Machina. Nathan says <sighs> Nathan, that. Nathan, yep. I'm a Bono. Bonehead. Bono. <laughs> Anthony is a Bono, everyone. <laughs> Extra double. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> no, man. It Making up words. means something. He's starting a new slang a new slang word, Bono, No, everybody. I'm using your excuse. I went for a run before this. Because he's a little I winded. Did. I did. Would I'm not get, winded. I'm just exhausted. A couple blocks. <laughs> <laughs> around the yard. Twice around the yard. <laughs> Here's my quote. I love rumors. Facts can be so misleading where rumors, true or false, are often revealing. revealing. <laughs> so this is... Uh, <laughs> Hans Landa in Inglorious Bastards. Well done. Oh, yeah. Well done. Playing at uh, midnight every night. At We're going New uh, tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. It should be fun. Guess this movie release here, Anthony. Swingers. 1996. You're so money, you don't even know how money you are, baby. <laughs> You're correct. 1996, Swingers came out. You're so money, baby. <laughs> the Big Lebowski. 1996? 98. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> you fooled yourself. <laughs> All right. Movie pop quiz time. Anthony and listeners. Which Alfred Hitchcock film remake did Julianne Moore star in? I know this. Psycho, directed by Gus Van Sant. Yes, sir. And Vince Vaughn played Anthony Perkins. I mean... Not Anthony Perkins. What's his fucking name? Norman, Norman Bates. Bates. <laughs> that's the actor's name. Accent. He's basically, that's all people refer yeah, to yeah, him as anyways. Yeah. All right, here's my quiz. Who directed V for Vendetta? Another fantastic dystopian tyrannical film. Crap, who the hell did direct this? I always, because it's, it's not directed by the Wachowskis. They produced it. Correct. That's why it has a very Matrix style. It is directed by... 
might have been too hard. I don't think this is correct. Francis Lawrence. John McTeague. John McTeague. He worked on, he did Ninja Assassin for the Wachowskis and then their TV show. What's their TV show? Six, no, Sense8. Sense8, yeah, he did a lot of Sense8. But yeah, Ninja Ninja Assassin was a huge bomb, so I don't think he got another chance to make a film. We are going to be doing V for Vendetta on the 5th of November this year. Remember, remember to watch that. I love that movie. Hell yeah. Do we have any... Oh, haters. Haters, unsubscribes. We got a couple. We got a couple. Sorry, I didn't didn't, uh, screenshot them together in a row. One second. One second. Bear with me. Okay. Jay Kelly commented on one of our TikTok clips about the Fast and Furious party talking about um, the cars. So Jay Kelly wrote, that's not the charger from the original. I don't believe it. It, it, That one had a chrome grill, larger supercharger, bug catcher, and more period correct wheels so i wonder if that's even the real car or a screen car used or maybe even one of the camera cars also unsubscribed <laughs> <laughs> so yeah he has a i looked it up and like it doesn't look like the actual car from fast and furious one um we had a real hater he said something really terrible to us happens um, pretty often yeah <laughs> so uh in our Clip for Guardians Three, where you made a great clip talking about the the uh, what's the, the high evolutionary being a great villain, great villain with no, no empathy. empathy. This guy, I blocked, I blocked him because he he said a couple other nasty things to us. This guy wrote, "Straight white men in celebrating not having to empath- have empathy." Shocker. Okay, so it, so I just like I was like Jesus. So so straight white men don't have empathy. That's what he said. Yeah. I didn't write the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I just don't care about the backstory of every villain. <laughs> it's better. No, you're an evil person, Jim. The Joker is amazing because you you don't know what his past is. I don't want to hear. It. I don't want to hear it. Straight white man. <laughs> hey, if they need to keep justifying villains killing a billion people, whatever, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was. I thought it was a terrible. I thing. guess you feel good about Thanos yeah. killing trillions of human be- of civil of uh beings yeah and i i did reply to him i said what are you what are you implying here that we're evil people who don't have empathy and he said that's exactly what i'm implying whoa man it's i just blocked him after that that's quite the reach yeah it was a terrible thing to say i care about things i know goodness well i have a great five-star review let's hear it to uh a nice rebound clear the tension this is from adamantium princess love the name (laughs) do you have adamantium in your skeleton too (laughs) if you're a fan of movies and cinema Raiders of the Lost podcast is a must-listen for you. Hosted by two of the most passionate film enthusiasts I have ever known, this podcast dives deep into all things movies, television, and more. They bring a wealth of knowledge and expertise to the table, discussing everything from the history and cultural significance of film to their favorite scenes and behind-the-scenes stories. Their love for movies is infectious, and it's easy to get caught up in the excitement as they explore movies in such great detail. One thing I appreciate about this podcast is the level of research and analysis that goes into each episode. They don't just scratch the surface of a film. They deliver incredible amounts of facts about filmmaking as a whole. Also, their commitment to their fan base goes above and beyond. Overall, Raiders of the Lost podcast is a fantastic show for everyone who loves movies and great storytelling. They're the mo- they are the most engaging and knowledgeable hosts and are such a blast to listen to, making them the perfect podcast for you. Wow, what That's an so incredible sweet. review. That's great. Wow, the word count is so high. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. That's an amazing review. Adamantium Princess, thank you so much. We appreciate you 
tuning into our show, and we hope you're enjoying this episode of Children of Men if you're tuning in because it has all the things that you love about our show in it. So much research today. <laughs> we did a ton of research. I spent all morning. All right. Uh, do you have recommendation? Yeah. What do you got? I recommend watching The Best of Youth, which came out in 2003. It's a six-hour Italian film, but it's really great. <laughs> it's about uh, two brothers who walk very different paths in life, uh, centering upon some of the major uh, impactful moments of Italy's history in the 2000s and late 90s. I'm sorry, uh, the 60s to 80s. And so a lot of the big political or societal elements and standout historical events of Italy during that time. And they both like were on opposite sides. Like One became a cop and... One became an activist, and they actually like are on opposite sides of a of a protest and a riot at one point. Uh, very di very different political idea ideologies, but their bond is still is still so very powerful. Um, but also, it's a great story, and incredible characters and very detailed. It feels like I watched like the lives of two people unfolding, and also like there's a bunch of other characters involved in the story. But couldn't recommend it enough. The best of youth. My streaming recommendation for this episode is On the Counts of Three. This is on HBO Max. It was directed by Gerard Carmichael. It is a very dark, dark buddy comedy that I highly recommend. And it's just a really good time. If you like those like nihilistic, intense comedies, it's just a good time. So On the Count of Three. On HBO Max. That just came out, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of people recommended that yeah. to me last year. I don't think it's been on HBO Max for a while, but uh -huh. yeah, it's, it's there now. Mm -hmm. It's good, though? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Lives up to the... I, you I would like it a lot. All right. I, I, get, I, I recommend keep, it. Yeah, I get a bunch of people DM me that movie last year, I remember. Yeah. Because it came out last, like, fall or something. I believe it was, yeah, 2020... Or 2022. 2021. 2021. Okay. Yeah. Now, getting back into Children of Men, most specifically, it's production design as well as Quaron's preference not to use dialogue as exposition for the audience, but instead showing you the world visually to give you a sense for what's going on. There are actually a ton of newspaper headlines visible on screen throughout the course of the film, which inform the audience what is happening in this world and what has happened. So I have a, a list of these headlines. If you'd like to uh, give me a second to read these off. Well, okay. it would probably take you uh, like a minute to read them off, Anthony, not a second. <laughs> okay, okay, wise ass. I'm going to take my time now. Nice and slow. All right, here's the got nowhere to be. <laughs> here are the newspaper headlines you see throughout the course of the film. <clears throat> Raid nabs refugees weapons cache. Africa devastated by nuclear fallout. US troops full attack. Extremist explosion a right royal ripoff. Charles should be thrown out T H R O N E thrown. Also this movie uh, has Charles as the king of England. Elizabeth has passed away in this film. So that's also something they got correct in terms of like Charles taking over. Militias occupy Cincinnati. Bozeman and Spokane. Chaos in refugee camps. Fertility drug kills. Surgeon arrested. Hormone attacks. Violent reaction. 100 suicides. National, nation in denial. Russia in crisis. Massive migration, police put mosques under surveillance, gatherings are forbidden, bombing of Saudi pipeline disrupts world's oil supply. That's pretty crazy. Refugees blame for increase in terror attacks. Coast towns turned into refugee camps. PM denies torture of British citizens. 
Allegations of abuse dismissed as a sham. Dirty bomb detonated in Munich. England bans all immigration completely. 25 25% infertility rate. This is in dated as 2008, so a few years before full 100% infertility rate. Two years since last baby born. No baby hope admits scientists. War and famine lead to mass migration. Janice Palmer questions British ethical response to the refugee situation. Janice was Jasper's wife. Massive migration. Channel tunnel closed. All foreigners now illegal. Refugees mass on Europe. And MI5 involvement in torture of photojournalists implying Janice. Yeah, and they actually predicted a lot of things that happened in the last several years and decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, The global pandemic, obviously, of 2020, that's something that happened. And they predicted, well, not saying that it was going to happen, but, you know, it happened. That was in 2008 in this world. Anti-immigration movements seem to have begun stronger the last several years. Subtle advancements in technology, for sure. I think, like, the digital screens is something that they definitely got Surveillance. Surveillance, for sure. Also, the 2012 London Olympics. So there's a a sequence where Theo is wearing a 2012 London Olympic Games shirt. Mm -hmm. And filming took place in 2005 for this film. And then a few months before they started filming, London won the bid to have the 2012 Olympic Games there. So it's not like they predicted it was going to happen, but they added it in there to add you know, some cultural context to the world and accuracy, which is really interesting and For effective sure. as hell. I would love to start talking about the characters. Let's start with Theo. Yeah. Now, fun fact about Theo real quick before we get too in-depth on him. Did you notice that animals love him? Yeah, and I think that it's a sign that he's got great character because the dogs love him, so doesn't the little kitten that the runs up kitten, his, ca- yeah. his leg. All the dogs love him, and the, the kitten climb up his leg. This is, I mean, Quaron does not do things by accident. He's a very controlled director. So these are things that he's putting into the film on purpose. I know, you know, there'll be people on TikTok who'll be like, oh, whatever, it's just a dog. Like, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean anything. English teacher. It's all by design. Judge Dogs are a great judge of character. That's, you know, a common phrase. And it, it ties to him bad. being a trustworthy person, which is also key trusts him because Julian told him to told her to trust him if anything gets spooky yeah he's a great guy deep down you know he was once a great man he was a former political activist that was working with julian and now after the loss of his son and the loss of hope for humanity he has just gone full-blown apathetic apathetic to the world he is ironically working as a government bureaucrat basically the exact antithesis of what he believed in when he was young in in his youth, in fighting the government. He's an alcoholic. Like I said, he's got a drink in his hand at almost every moment in the first act of this film. Like you said, animals like him. And he goes through massive transformation in this film to become the kind of person he was in his youth where he is full of hope as soon as he sees Key's pregnant belly. All he wants is money. Even Julian's, he's like, Julian's like all, you, all you're here for is the money. That's all you want. Yeah. Really? And yeah. then he's like, where you got my money? See, that's all you care about is the money. All he cares about is himself until he reveals the pregnancy to him in that barn. Then he gets hope again, and he risks his life and eventually gives his life to protect and save Key and bring her to refuge. Yeah, and we do get some exposition in this film, especially in the first act, uh, but it's very minimal and subtle. Julian explains, she tells this funny story of how 
when they were younger, uh, Theo drugged a group of officers with ketamine uh, as a joke. And so he, they were very politically active. And there's even a photo of them holding Dylan at a, at a protest. And the death of their son Dylan is definitely the main catalyst for their separation. And you can see that Julian took the complete opposite path of Theo and became more of an extremist and uh, absolute uh, le- a leader within the organization of the fishes. Whereas Theo, like you said, became apathetic and actually became, you know, part of the machine of bureaucracy and kind of just went in, in the opposite direction. And you, you, it makes you wonder what would have happened if uh, Dylan had survived. Uh, and I like the contrast of the characters because they were on the same path and had the same direction in life when they were younger. But then the tragedy caused the rift and they went in completely opposite directions, uh, informed by the world. And it's also a depiction of how people can deal with trauma and deal with loss and grief. Whereas Theo just has just, he just shut down. And you could say Julian uh, had motivation to try which, to work harder at what she was doing and to become more of an extremist in a way. Yeah, and she's in charge of the fishes until her death when she was basically betrayed by the other fishes who Luke. are now – Luke and the other fishes who are going to use Key's baby as basically a weapon against the government and to start an uprising where – at first, Julian and the fishes were trying other nonviolent means as best they could. Where they there are violent protests that they've done in the past, but you know the government's also yeah, they, spreading they misinformation. At, they bombed something in Liverpool. They yeah. hinted at. Now the fishes are different than the human project. The human project, you could say, you know, something like The Last of Us took a lot of inspiration probably from this movie and this oh, story. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these secret organizations, as well as the government tyrannical control over citizens, and the human project are probably, you could say, argue sort of like the Fireflies where they're a secret organization, even more secret than the fishes, and the Human Project is trying to find a cure to infertility. Now, the fishes and Julian, they're trying to get key to the Human Project, and the thing with the Human Project is it's such a secret society, and they can't reveal where they are, who they are to anybody, that they talk and communicate with people and the fishes through mirrors. This is how... Luke is not able to track them later in the film to find out that they're getting going to that boat is because Julian was in charge of the situation, talking through mirrors. So you talk to somebody, they talk to somebody else, and that person they talk to talks to the human project, and then vice versa, the human project talks to somebody, they talk to somebody else, and they talk to you, basically. So working through mirrors so that the identity of the human project is still anonymous and hidden. And there's a great little production design Easter egg where they take Theo in, in the van and they they cover him with the, the mask and then they take the, the mask off and he's in that that windowed room covered with newspaper clippings, you know? That, so the production team actually made all those newspaper articles and pages by hand and they all are actually real stories that you can read. Um, and also, there's an article above Clive Owen's head that says more, M-O-O-R-E, for a person's name. And then Julian Moore, Julian is sitting in front of him. So it's a, it's a little Easter egg the production team put in there. Great little Easter egg. Love it. Jasper, again, great character from Michael Caine. So fun. He adds that brevity that's really needed in this movie. Lightheadedness and just lightheartedness. His strawberry cough, 
marijuana, which is so <laughs> strong and makes you taste strawberries when you cough. It's just a blast. He's always like, what do you, what do you taste? What do you taste? Cough now, cough. It's so funny. Strawberries. Such a positive person. Delightful. Just loves yeah. his wife so much. And yeah, the pull my finger jokes. He's got that hippie mentality, the John Lennon aloofness, which is so fun and exciting. And so I, I think he's a really important character to this movie. And Michael Caine was still killing it at this time. This is 2006, and you know he's 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 Alfred and this at the same time, basically. One of the best actors of all time, and he really is a, a wonderful performer. And you can really see in this film, I think that maybe younger people are unaware of how big he was. Obviously, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but also how talented he is. Uh, many, many Oscar nominations. And a win. And a win. He was filming Jaws. He's two wins. Two, <laughs> two wins. couldn't accept it. Two wins. A hus- uh, the Woody Allen film, what is it called? Hannah and Her Sisters. And then he also won for, fuck, something. I can't remember. But Jasper is a really terrific character, and he's someone who perfectly embodies uh, the idea of hope and trying to make a difference. And in a way, he's still trying to live a life, unlike Theo, who's just basically cut himself off from feeling anything at all. And it is a very tragic outcome for Jasper, who dies horribly, and whose wife was tortured by the government, and like I said, has been in a catatonic stake for a very long time. And he ends up um, killing her with quietus, quietus, so that she doesn't have to suffer the hands of the fishes. But I, I love Jasper... And he's always a breath of fresh air whenever I watch this film. But this is one of the this is probably the first film I saw where I, I was like Michael Caine is an unbelievable actor. I would say. I think you said catatonic steak. I did say catatonic <laughs> steak. I absolutely, one hundred percent did. So and going yeah. back to him being a political cartoonist or former cartoonist. So like you said earlier, the production in the location, I mean the scenery, you can see. His cartoons from his past and his work, and I love the de-aged photos of him with the long hair, yeah. like the big grin. And the cartoons that were in the film were actually drawn by Steve Bell, an award-winning political cartoonist for the Guardian newspaper. And like I said, he based his character on John Lennon. He actually was friendly with John Lennon, and so he was able to take that away to kind of inject that personality he saw in real life into this character. And Quaron explained that Michael Caine's not a method actor, but he said once Michael had the clothes on and he stepped in front of the mirror to look at himself, his body language immediately started to change. Michael loved it, and he ended up – he believed he was this guy. But he's great. Like, just the way he, he plays the stoner, like, leaning on the edge of the couch and just, like, he's always, like, in a relaxed state. And he's kind of, like, all over the place physically. And his hand gestures – he's he captured it perfectly. It's, like, it's as good as – um. What, oh, I'm so, as good as Franco did in Pineapple Express playing a stoner. You know what I mean? That physicality, the embodying. It's not just like, yeah, I'm high, bro. But like the <laughs> physicality of a person like that, he captured perfectly. Also, Miriam is a character who you're kind of unsure of for a little bit because she does work for the fishes with Julian. But then obviously, after, we real, after Theo discovers the plot against Julian by Luke and Miriam joins them on their journey, you realize that all she cares about is Key and Key's baby and protecting Key, and she eventually sacrifices herself to save Key later in the film on that refugee bus. And before then, we learn backstory about who she is and who she was at that school sequence when they're waiting for Sid to show up, the police officer who's going to smuggle them into the refugee camp. 
And Miriam is telling that story about who she was in her past when she used to be a midwife and she helped deliver babies for a living. And she was at basically ground zero of where all these nurses all around the world that she was communicating with every day, every week, more babies were being lost to miscarriages until eventually only a couple of babies a week, then a couple of babies a month. And then eventually no babies were being born at all. So she at all, she was ground zero in a hospital of seeing this firsthand the many miscarriages, the failed pregnancies, and the loss of births. I, I would say she's one of the most tragic parts of the film, Miriam's ultimate um, conclusions, the st- conclusion of her story, because she gets taken off the bus because Key is in pain and the officer suspects Key of, being, of doing something. And then Miriam, like you said, sacrifices herself by standing up and praying right in the guy's face, enticing him to take her off the bus instead of Key. And then she's putting this line up of a few other uh, immigrants, and as the and as the bus starts rolling onward, we see the different stages that these poor people are going through. Where first they're being threatened and lined up, then they're being stripped, and then they're being executed. And then we end up seeing just the the covered bodies of of the corpses, and you can only assume that's about to happen to Miriam, which is so tragic. But then also. The, in the entire journey into the refugee camp is one of the most horrific sequences I've ever seen in a movie. And something that I like to compare it to is uh, the journey for 12 Years a Slave for Solomon, his journey from being captured when he's being captured and he's, he's held prisoner in, in the southern Maryland, if I'm correct. And then he's transported into the slave auction. Like that journey, it's like a five-minute journey that's just terrifying and horrifying and this move this sequence reminds me of that they have a lot in common and the music's ter- terrifying but you see these horrible circumstances in the cages and the the walls of fences that these poor immigrants and these these un- unfortunate people have to work through and bob their bob and weave their way through and they're treated like absolute scum and like animals by the the officers and and the government officials and then once they get once they if they're lucky enough to get through that journey, they make it into the refugee camp, which is just seems like hell on earth. And it's like like its own little wild west. And it seems like a hellish place to to, to even spend a night. But to even, many people live there like that's where their home is now. And Quaron was very specific about the design of this place of the refugee camp. I'm pulling it up one second. Bear with me. Well, I can keep going on. Yeah. It's kind of a modern-day concentration camp, the transportation, the travel to the refugee camp. And it harkens to something like Schindler's List and to see what these people go through and persecuted just because of who they are, where they were born, where they're from, or religious rights. And and, and now, like I said, immigration and illegal immigration is one of the main themes of this film and, and what they have to go through when they're sent to these camps and just when they are there, they're basically doomed to death. And so for the production design, Quaron kept saying to his crew, and it was about making the place look run down and to portray poverty. He also made use of London's most popular sites, shooting in locations like Trafalgar Square and Battersea Power Station. The power station scene whose, converse, whose conversion into an art archive is a reference to the Tate Modern has been compared to Antonioni's Red Desert, the Italian filmmaker. It's a terrific film, Red Desert, if you haven't seen it. Uh, Quaron added the pig balloon, obviously, as homage to to Pink Floyd's flying animals. And the refugee camp is one of these instances where they wanted to make it feel as run down and inhumane in, in a place struck with absolute poverty. But also what's interesting is it's a neighborhood. 
You know, it's a and there are people it's that a city. It's a city, and people live there and still do. And um, what's the woman's name? Monica, Monica, Monicara, something. Yeah, she brings Theo and Key to an apartment where an elderly couple lives, but they seem to be. Like they've lived there all their lives. The Polish family, yeah, the Polish family, and they're feeding the baby orange slices. And no, they're feeding Keep orange slices. Key, sorry, feeding <laughs> Key. <laughs> it's, it's a day old baby. Yeah, it's the run. Can't it's, be it's eating tangerines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, um, feeding Key orange slices, but playing with the baby. But if you look around the home, it looks they have they've had that home for many many decades. You can tell, and so they just took a part of the city. Kind of like a Jewish ghetto in Poland or a Jewish ghetto in Germany, basically walling it off and being like, that's where we're sending everybody. And that's an example of that because people lived there until everybody was put there. And Cuaron, this is, you know, referencing Mexican poverty. Itu Mama Tambien and the Roma are two films that heavily uh, explore the themes of wealth disparity in Mexico, but not just Mexico, but in any yeah, Western yeah. civilization, really, in, in any major uh, developed country. And I think that's a that's definitely a great reference. But yeah, those two movies explore that with the characters as well as the locations and, and the sequences they get into. I mean, Itumama Tambi and the two main characters, one's upper class, one's lower class. Same thing with with Roma. The main character is the servant of an upper class family in Mexico, and we see the two different style, the two different lifestyles and, and lives that the, and worlds they come from. So that was that's a great reference for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like I said, the production design is remarkable, and it's not just that stuff, but also the the futurist production design, especially in London. You see, you know, what looks like it'd be a possible future for a metropolis environment. In terms of billboards, in terms of transportation, uh, advertisements, how we uh, intake the media, and I, I think that it seems like it's very likely possibilities for these kinds of areas. And of course, key, the central character in the film in terms of the saving of humanity, the first woman to give birth to a baby in 18 years. She's very young. She's probably about 17, 18 years old, the character. That's what they assume. You know, uh, Jasper says that Dylan would be about your age by now. And if Dylan died back in, what was it, 2008, they said. So she's, they'd probably be around the same age, about 18, 20 years old. She doesn't know who the father of the baby is. And she's got so much heart and spunk and wit. And she's so energetic and fiery, and, and you love it so much. And I love how there's this kind of ongoing joke of what to name the baby. First, it's Frawley, and then it's Bazooka. And then she eventually decides to name the child Dylan, which can be a girl's name as well, naming the baby after Theo and Julian's child. Now, the complexity of the situation with, 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 uh, with Ki is she's a Fuji. And you would think that the first birth... In the first pregnancy in 18 years would be lifted up in the world should be made public theo says we should make it public but the fishes make theo realize you can't tell the government that the first this government won't accept that the first pregnancy in the first birth is from a fuji woman they would hide it probably the government would go to the length of probably kill the baby no 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 they they wouldn't kill the baby. They would take the baby and make it seem like a upper class couple gotcha, had yeah, the baby. Yeah, right. Yeah, they wouldn't kill it. I mean, they they would hide the fact. They, there's potential they would hide the fact that the baby was even born. Possibly, to, to, but but 
they uh, uh, they're propping up one, that, of, one of them says that an elite yeah. woman would is yeah, the one that gave exactly birth. they would change who the parents were publicly so the fact that the government wouldn't be unable to accept that a fuji woman who they declassified as as like a full human now yeah is the first pregnancy and the first pregnant woman in 18 years. And like you said earlier, Julian Moore's character, Julian, is, was originally the the first pregnancy, and that's how it is in the book. But uh, they actually wrote the character of Key, uh, Quaron and his writing team, because he has an interest in the recent single-origin hypothesis of human origins and the status of dispossessed people. So the single-origin hypothesis is the idea that all all human beings came from Africa, and then depending on where they migrated to, different regions of the world, that changed in terms of evolution, in terms of pigmentation of skin, types of hair, eye color, all sorts of things. And it, that was the change in, in humanity physically was based upon ge geographical, regional locations, how much sunlight people were exposed to, cold weather, hot weather. So that changed the way we looked. But everyone came from Africa. And that's why the film cast uh, a black actress in Claire Hope Ashity. In order to portray this idea they had for a new reinvention of the character. And Quaron said the fact that this child will be the child of an African woman has to do with the fact that humanity started in Africa. We're putting the future of humanity in the hands of the dispossessed and creating a new humanity to spring out of that. Which I think is a, a great addition and change to the story. And this movie turns into a really terrific ticking clock. And it's kind of ironic because humanity's on a ticking clock. Of slow ticking clock, but at some point that hourglass and all the sand is going to be gone. But this movie turns into like a 20-hour ticking clock for Key, Theo, and Miriam, eventually just Key and Theo, getting to that boat inside the refugee camp. But there are multiple ticking clocks because not only do they have to meet the human project at sunset the next day, and they will not, they will not wait for them. They might come back, but the next day they'll be gone. So they have to reach this boat. Because they have to maintain anonymity. Ex yeah, exactly. Anonymity. 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 <laughs> I hate that word. <laughs> anonymity. <laughs> anonymity. I have a belly button. <laughs> but they also have the ticking clock of Key is eight months pregnant. And then what, what starts to happen when they're on the bus after Sid is going to sneak them into the refugee camp, she starts having contractions. And she's not supposed to have them this early into her pregnancy. She should be waiting another month. And then... It's being brought on by the stress. Yes. And then on the bus, when they're entering the Bexhill refugee camp, her water breaks. And she's about to give birth. Then Theo has to give birth to Key in the refugee camp once they <laughs> somehow get in there safely. You, so you heard that funny. He has to, has to give birth to Key. Has to <laughs> help birth the baby yeah. with Key. Act as the midwife, you could say, in the refugee camp. But So there's two ticking clocks. They have to get there in time, but also they have to, they have to healthily and successfully give birth to the baby without getting caught in a refugee camp where conditions, the, the worst conditions you could possibly imagine to give birth to a child are inside this disgusting, unsanitary refugee camp. And the cleanest thing that they can give birth to the baby is using J Theo's jacket as well as cleaning his hands with whiskey. There's so much, so many elements of suspense in the last 40 minutes of the film. And, uh, and Sid, the character, is a, a main cause for so much conflict because uh, first he grows a little suspicious when he first is dropping them off, but then he lets them go. Sad Fiji phase. Sad Fiji phase. That's good. That's good. But then also... Once he sees them on the news, he goes back into the refugee camp to capture them because he want he they can he can get a pretty penny for them, and then he discovers the baby, and you're like, oh my god, this guy this guy can't know what's gonna happen, and he and he 
nearly succeeds in taking him away, but they manage to overpower him and knock him out. Another invisible thing of CGI I meant to I want to wanted to mention earlier when we were talking about the visual effects in CGI is when the door is is cracked and Sid is trying to break through and he sticks his head out the door, you know what I mean? And then Theo grabs like this metal, I don't know, it looks like a car a car battery or something. And he picks it up and he bashes it into Sid's face. Uh that was all CGI, the whole the entire object that Clive Owen picks up. And you can tell it's the way he's holding it, it's not quite a hundred percent. And then when he drops it, the way it falls and hits the ground, it just doesn't look quite right. But I've seen this movie ten times, I didn't notice it until like the twelfth time, and I was like, Oh, that's CGI. So it's another brilliant instance of invisible CGI that actors are interacting with. In the reveal of the pregnancy and the baby, it causes characters to react different ways. Obviously, Luke is a character who takes control of the fishes after he plans the attack on their car and kills Julian because he wants to use the baby as a beacon of of a weapon for the rebellion, the uprising of the fishes against the government of Britain. And then obviously Sid, once he finds out about the baby after finding out about them on the news, he's of of course shocked by the side of the baby, but he's going to still turn them in and still threatens to shoot them because he's trying to get the bounty basically for whoever pays the highest between the fishes and the government. And also we have the woman, the, the gypsy woman who helps them. All she wants to do is protect them. And she tries to warn them about Sid. You can't go with Sid, basically. They don't understand her language, but she's clearly saying, don't go with him. He's a bad man. And then even when Key gives her the baby when they're trying to escape through that door that is won't fully open, they slide through. She's like, my baby, my baby. You think, oh, she took the baby. But no, she's right there with the baby. Mm-hmm. She wants to help them. So she's a good person trying to help them and sees the hope in them and helps them get to the boat and lets them get away on the boat and sacrifices herself, basically. And the other ticking clock is the bombing of the city. Yes. <laughs> the city's about to be bombed, which that Sid, Sid reveals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's another ticking clock that they throw in. And, I mean, the, the next 15 minutes of the film was just heart-stopping proposal of action. And it's done... I love the... You can always tell when the wonder's going to start because it starts in that tunnel with the high strings, like... Like scary strings, and you're and every time I watch this movie, once the shot once the shot starts with that music, I'm always like, oh my god, here we go, let's fucking go. <laughs> it's incredible. It's a back and forth. I mean, they get overpowered by the fishes. The fishes take Key and the baby away. They almost get executed. But obviously, they are kind of rescued by the government and the distraction. Yeah. And then the sequence of getting to that apartment complex, which is just housing so many people. It's their home. That is being demolished and just riddled with bullets and tanks. And Theo has to wait for his perfect opportunities to sneak into there. And then getting the baby in key and just the crying baby and and how it basically parts the sea of a war zone to let them safely pass by. And everyone gets a glimpse at the miracle of this newborn baby and, and they get safe passage. But as soon as they get out of the area in the blast radius, you could say, of the war zone... This, the war zone continues. goes back up. And also there's a great moment where with Luke where he's talking about how the baby's going to be so useful for them, but he keeps using the pronoun he for the baby. And then uh, Theo says, it's a girl. And then Luke goes, a girl. And then he says, I had a sister once. And so you get to see the, a moment of humanity for Luke. And 
And with it's just a five seconds of the film, but then you think, oh my god, he had a past, he had a family, he had a mother, he had a sister, and so that makes you connect with him and empathize with him in an, in an instant, even though he's been uh, one of the main antagonists of the film. I, I love that moment. Yeah, it's tragic because Leo Theo gets hit. Yeah, by a bullet from Luke, but they do make it to the boat, obviously, and they row out there, and it's one of the most beautiful and tragic shots of the film. You know, they're rowing this boat in the middle of the ocean. There's fog everywhere. It's gray. There's no hope. What if they don't show up? And Theo is just so happy and, and content and confident that everything's going to be okay. And, you know, the beacon of light from the buoy in the in the ocean is just kind of just a, a symbol of hope for the humanity going forward. That It's really the brightest light we've seen in the film, you could say. And it's the most vibrant color we've seen in the film besides blood is this glowing red light from the buoy yeah and it's, it's a symbol of hope of the future for humanity and theo's passing is, is tragic but he seems to have passed away happily because he finally did something with his life that he always wanted to do and that was to do something for the good of humanity and the boat's called tomorrow yeah that's right yeah the that's called of tomorrow. the of the human project it's a representation of hope for the, for tomorrow I mean, yeah it's it's so tragic I, I cry every time that key tells him that I'm gonna name the baby Dylan. Yeah, it's it's so sad. I'm getting teary eyed right now. Oh my goodness! Stop talking about it. <laughs> I have a couple more cool facts that we didn't get in Let's the episode. Let's do it, man. So throughout the entire course of the film, Theo never picks up or uses a firearm. Oh yeah, it's true. Not once in the film does he. And then also, <clears throat> when Miriam is taken off the bus in the refugee camp, you can hear the song "Arbit Mach Free" by the Libertines. Arbit Mach Free mean, means, in translated into English, work shall set you free, which was written above the entrances of all the Nazi death and concentration camps in World War II. So it's a correlation, again, to the Holocaust, like you mentioned earlier. At the beginning of the movie, Theo leaves the coffee shop, and in the city of London, we see a, a tall, pointed building that can be seen in the background. This building is called the Shard. We actually mentioned it in movie news the other week with Joey Locke. Joey Locke. <laughs> but it's uh, one of the tall it's the tallest building in Western Europe. However, it was not built until 2009 when construction began. So they digitally put it into the film. I believe they probably the buildings take a long time. It's a long process, so I'm sure that it was already approved and the planning was begun and so that the filmmakers were able to know like oh this building will be up here at this point in the film. So they actually digitally put the shard in the film. It wasn't even built yet when they actually filmed the movie. To go back to the sound real quick, I think the music choices of this film are, are phenomenal. And Coron used a combination of rock, pop music, electronic music, hip hop, classical music for the film, as well as some inventive and chaotic experimental music that Jasper puts on when when, he, when Theo tells him his ears ringing. He's like, oh, so you wouldn't mind a little bit of this? And it's like, ah! <laughs> crazy music and not just the music it's but a also, real style of music yeah but also the ambience of the film there's so much great sound design whether you're we're at that the farmhouse the first hideout hideout house where we have the dogs in the background the roosters the chickens but also even in the city just the sound of so many cars and foot traffic and just the sounds of a city just creating this incredible ambience that Sure, some of it they picked up there, but a lot of it's just added in post-production. So there's great ambient sound yeah. design wherever yeah. they are. Also, a dog is present in almost every shot of the movie. 
holy crap, yeah. you're right. Many, many shots of the movie, there's a dog present at one point yeah, in frame. that's a good point, man. That's a good point. There's so many things hidden in the the frame that makes this, which is one of the reasons why this movie is so endlessly rewatchable. It's a movie that I've seen many, many times since it came out. Another Christian reference, the title of the film oh, is, yeah. uh, it comes from Psalm 90, so Children of Men, and Psalm 90 says, Lord... Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but a yesterday when it is a past and as a watch in the night. And men refers to just humanity. It's not yeah. just like a gender term, just men. It does, I think a lot of people, they look at the surface of the title, Especially, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they think that's just the like, Bible. It's yeah. just, just yeah. humanity, yeah. men, in general. And like I said, the book is is it, it's much more heavily um, spiritual and religious, especially in terms of Christianity, in terms of its themes and actual structures of the plot. So there were actually some critics of the film when it came out. Uh, some fans of the book said that it was actually they didn't like the new interpretation and basically taking all aspects of religion out of the story. But I think it works better this way. Well, in the standard religion, do you think that Theo potentially represents a Christ-like figure? I think specifically the suffering, but also I think the purposeful actions in detail of him having no shoes for a good portion of the film and going through the pain of his feet. Maybe it's a reference to Jesus carrying the crucifix, something like that, enduring pain. Well, you could also uh, correlate it to Dante's Inferno. And the just traveling through different stages of suffering, as well. I would say I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't view him as a representation of a Christ-like figure, um, but I think he's a representation of uh, hope and the good within humanity. Is, but he does hi- die for humanity. He does. Yeah, he do, he does absolutely sacrifice, sacrifice himself. himself. Yeah, he does absolutely. But I just I don't I don't look at it that way, but. Um, I think that, like I said earlier, with Quaron put uh, I, s- references to religion, but nothing very um, tangible or specific. It's more of like uh, kind of like a, a loose connection to aspects of religion, like not having her be a virgin, but making a joke about being a virgin who's pregnant. You know what I mean? So I think that it's not exactly like he represents a Christ-like figure, but represents like a kind of a, a version of one. Maybe I would say so. Kind of, yes. Yeah, kind so of. Basically, definitely. you said you just said yes. I said yes. So he does. He doesn't represent Christ, but in a way, he does. It was a, it was a long-winded yes. Yes. <laughs> I just don't want to agree with you. <laughs> Rewind. Yes, he does represent a Christ-like figure. <laughs> but I mean, children and men. There's still so much to talk about. I mean, I want to watch it again. Like even after watching it last night, it's just that incredible of a movie. And I hope if you have, haven't have seen it in a while, you revisit it or you hopefully revisited it recently before yeah. watching and listening to the episode. Or maybe if it was your first time watch, I hope you really appreciated how incredible this film is. And I know a lot of you really love the film because a lot of people have DM'd us about it. And But I'm, I'm just shocked at its kind of average rating. Uh, it does have a 4.2 on Letterboxd, which is great. But the 7.9 on IMDb I, I find so surprising. Anything it's, near an eight is still really good. I know, but, I'm but like it's this not is at least an eight. Yeah, like this is like we talk about how like this is what we think 
uh, Children of Men we consider is one of the few masterpieces of the 21st century. Like, this is definitely one of them. And it's also a film that, like, was so uh, overlooked in terms of any of the awards spotlight. I mean... He didn't even get a nomination for Best Director. Oh, yeah. Not Best... To not win Best Director and also, I mean, just all of the, every Every award it should have been nominated for. And I, I think this should have won Best Picture. I think... Uh, what won that year? Let me check. It better not have been Crash. <laughs> 2006. What the hell won? Let's see. No, Crash was 05, I think. So the movie came out in 2006, so it would have been the 2007 Oscars, right? Yes. And again, it only got nominated for three and lost all three. So let's see, 2007 Oscar winners. Oscar. The Departed. The Departed. Ooh, that's tough to compete but with. But it didn't even get nominated, though. So Marty won Best Picture and it won Best Director that year. All right, I mean, it's Marty. That was a good year. The Little Miss Sunshine, The Lives of Others, Marie Antoinette. Uh, yeah, Forrest Whitaker won for the King of Last King of Scotland. Oh, it's an awesome movie. Yeah, um, yeah. It's this was. I think about that movie year. every time I have in Painful Gas. The Last King of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> if you've seen the movie, you get it. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a stomach oh, ache man. and you just got to get it out. But also, I mean, in terms of other directors, so Inyaritu was nominated for Babel, Babel, um, Clint Eastwood for Letters from Iwo Jima, Stephen Frears for The Queen, and United 93 for Paul Greengrass. So it was a very competitive year of directing. However, I do think that this was the best year that ke- the best film that came out in 2006. Um, and I honestly love The Departed and I love Babel, but this is Children of Men is on I think a a different level. You're on a different level, man. You are. You are. Thank you everyone for tuning into our episode on Alfonso Cuarón's Children of Men. Again, don't forget to become a patron today at patreon.com/slash. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is the very best way to support our show. Please leave us those five-star reviews as well on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a written review. We love to read those out on the show during the intermissions we do every time. And subscribe on YouTube if you're watching. Thanks so much. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.